pay your dues, they say. 10,000 hours. They say the Beatles learned their chops in Germany. Hemingway learned to write as a journalist. There's a musician from the 90s named Jeff Buckley whose work I adore. His album Grace is an absolute masterpiece to me. One of the songs, Lover You Should Have Come Over, just crushes me every time I hear it. They say Jeff Buckley really became great doing shows at this tiny New York City cafe called Chenet, playing for like 20 people. But I listen back to the album he recorded there and I don't hear some young artist finding themselves. I, I hear beautiful music, just as I imagine I'd hear if I could transport myself to Germany in 1960 and listen to the Beatles play in those clubs. I was recently at the Museum of Modern Art looking at early George O'Keefe watercolors and paintings by Mark Rothko, the ones made before these brilliant painters created the works we see as definitive. I hear people talking about actors cutting their teeth on the stage before graduating to film and television. Same with playwrights, getting their start in theater before making it in Hollywood. This framing upsets me because it dismisses the early work of artists and denigrates the places these artists create in. But because we insist on measuring impact, value, and artistic success in dollars, the early years of artists' works are usually recognized simply as stepping stones. I get upset because I think about the heart, the passion, the time, and the talent it takes to create anything. And I know there's value in it, regardless of the number of cumulative hours one puts in prior to its creation, or the amount of money the work results in. I often talk to playwrights who mention their first or earliest works with embarrassment. I hang on these moments of conversation when they want to run past them, because I wish we could all believe in the value of our work early or late stage or someplace in between. It means something because it meant something. Are we the Beatles, or Jeff Buckley, or Ernest Hemingway, or George O'Keefe? Maybe to somebody we are. But do we even need to be in order to matter as artists? Absolutely not. I love early works. They're a starting point. But the way I see it, they're also a destination. This is the Subtext Podcast, brought to you by American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. This month on the Subtext, I share a conversation with the great M.J. Kaufman and their dog milkshake. If you're new to the Subtext, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts for most of you probably, and while you're there subscribing, please rate us with five stars and leave a review. You can do that before even listening. Just assume you'll love it. If you are interested in communicating directly with the subtext, send an email to thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 505-302-1235. So, recently I traveled to New York City to record some conversations for the podcast, and I have to say it was one of the best, most fulfilling trips to the city I've had. 
I got to meet some amazing people, have conversations that were a long time coming, and see some inspiring art. I spent a ton of time at the Jamba Bookshop and even recorded a future episode there, so shout out to the Jamba Bookshop for allowing me to squat with my equipment for a while. One of the conversations I had the pleasure of recording while I was in the city was with the playwright M.J. Kaufman. Their plays have been seen at the Public Theater, WP Theater, National Asian American Theater Company, Club Thumb, Cult Corps, Williamstown Theater Festival, Interact Theater, Yale School of Drama, and numerous other theaters and schools around the country, as well as in Russian in Moscow and in Australia, presumably in Australian. Their work has been developed by the Lark Play Development Center, the Playwrights Realm, Page 73, and New York Theater Workshop, among others. Most recently, MJ co-wrote the book to a transparent musical based on the Amazon Prime television show, Transparent. We talk a bit about that near the end of our chat, which was recorded in July 2023 in the Bay Ridge neighborhood of Brooklyn. strap in because <laughs> because i said i said brian you have a history in improv yes right so just trust your instincts yes and something's gonna come yes and now and it. i'm sitting here on your couch <laughs> looking at milkshake which is a dog by the way and i got nothing <laughs> How did you come up with Milkshake? We um, chose the name before we got the dog. It's sort of like, you know how sometimes when people are pregnant, they have like a placeholder name for mm-hmm. the, they're like avocado or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, and we, we were going to get um, a Labrador Retriever mix, mm-hmm. but because it was rescue, we didn't know very much about it. And there was like color options and the options were like chocolate vanilla strawberry so it was like when we get our milkshake Uh and then it just stuck and now here she is milkshake and she brings all the boys to the yard (laughs) she brought this boy to the yard that's right i know as soon as you were like are you okay with dogs i was like all right this is gonna be this is gonna be it's gonna be fun did you know you're actually interviewing a dog today (laughs) i had no idea it's just a bonus this might be this might be the first dog actually to participate to grace the show. Yeah. Milkshake, how do you feel about that? You're breaking new ground. She's like, "Well, my last play <laughs> <laughs> took me forever to write. It was uh, real rough." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that uh I love that I get to venture around to all these different little corners yes. of the city. And, uh, I mean, we're in Bay Ridge. You live in yes, Bay Ridge. I live in Bay Ridge. Um, and this is fantastic. I love it here. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's so cool. Like, I mean, I don't know how, I guess you just apartment hunt, right. And you find, you find <laughs> the apartment that you can get into, but, yeah. but I, I can't wrap my head around what that's like in a place that's as vast as, is New York with so many different little corners. Yeah. Do you pick your location and then like, how did you find out about this area? Well, my partner was living here and I don't think I would have ever found it otherwise. Um, but when we decided to move in together, it just made sense for me to move in 
here because it's like a much bigger apartment than where I was living. That's the nice thing about Bay Ridge is you can get a lot of space. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the farther you get from Manhattan, the better the apartment, the bigger the apartment, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that's true, yeah. Yeah, and I like, like, it's right on the water. It's really beautiful. I think, like, probably the biggest drawback is the R train, but that does mean that fewer people move here, so it stays affordable. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. But I've definitely, like, missed theater on a Saturday night trying to get into the city, and the R train is just delayed or ridiculously slow or stopped underground forever for no reason. So um, that's kind of a bummer. I Yeah, well, I, I felt that in a smaller way because I was – for a minute thinking about going to see something tonight. Yeah. And I was like, I'll bet you that's going to give me some stress that I can't handle. (laughs) (laughs) So how about I plan to do nothing afterwards? Good thinking. And I'll feel much better. Yeah. Because I don't want to be talking to you and then like. Be like, oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. So we good? (laughs) Do you feel like distant from like the theater world of New York living here in Barrage not really I mean I feel like theater is people are so scattered like they live in so many different places there's actually quite a few actors that live in this neighborhood we used to all get together and have like a film series during COVID Mm -hmm. um and there's actually a theater not far away target margin you can Mm -hmm. walk to Mm um but I spend a lot of time in Manhattan. I teach at NYU. I like go to see plays and have meetings and rehearsals there. So um, I feel pretty connected. And then when I come back here, it's like some nice space, you yeah. know, some freedom from work until I walk my dog and run into an actor. But right, right. <laughs> yeah. Where did you grow up? Um, in Oregon, in Portland. Okay. Yeah. And I... Um, moved to the East Coast when I was 18 to go to college. And then my family followed me one by one. And now we all live sort of like all within driving distance of New York. Really? One aunt who's still in Oregon. So (laughs) does that change? Does that change your relationship to home? Yeah, completely. Um, Because when I go back to Oregon, it, it still feels like home, but I am sort of like I could never really settle here because I don't want to be a, a plane flight away from my family. I like to be able to just like jump in the car and see them. And yeah. Yeah. And New York, for whatever reason, it's always felt like home to me, like when the, like the moment I got here. So I don't know. Yeah. my uh, I grew up in New Hampshire and I don't think I have – I still have friends in my hometown and my parents are like snowbirds they're like a few Uh months they're they're at home in new hampshire and then they're down in north carolina and 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 so when like in the summer when they're there it is like going home and it definitely feels like home Mm -hmm. Uh, and i've lately been thinking about you know in future years when they're not doing that anymore like if they are permanently down south yeah uh do like do I make it back mm. to this hometown? And if I do, th- like, does it still feel like my hometown? You yeah. Know? Like, does it? So I, that's why I asked the question because I'm th- I'm actively thinking about this with my own relationship to to home. Yeah, 
It's definitely different, I think, to, for it to be home, but without your family in it. Yeah. I don't know, for me, yeah. Yeah. It Suddenly it's like all the changes are very visible. And the, the place that I come from, Portland, has like changed a ton since I grew up. Like almost every street corner it looks different, has different stores and different kinds of houses. Like it's just really, really gentrified in an extreme way. Um, and I feel like that feels harsher mm-hmm. when I go back and my family isn't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The past couple of days since I've been here in the city, I've, I'm reminded of how used I used to, I, I'm used to being in cities and how to physically be in a city. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember very much coming from like being coming out of high school and going to a city for the first time and uh like not feeling connected to that energy or understanding how to physically be and and uh i just this afternoon when i was walking on the sidewalks i was commenting on tourists as if i was a local (laughs) here like come on don't you don't just stop oh my gosh you don't just the way they walk or yeah. exiting a door, you don't stop right outside the door, right? Like, I, I was like, grumble, grumble. Yes. And I'm like, ah, I don't even live here. And I'm already, like, yes. I'm already doing this. I know. But you feel it so strongly here. And I feel it whenever I go anywhere else. Yeah. Like, why, don't, why doesn't anyone know how to walk down the street? I know. <laughs> it Doesn't it feel like a superpower? Like, yes. Like, I know how to cross the street better. <laughs> because I know how, like to cheat it i know i don't ha- you don't have to wait for the walk signal you know yeah. sometimes you can make it across and i and i'm just like ah i have the cheat code <laughs> <laughs> and i'm doing my i'm doing a service actually is how that's i look right. at it that's I'm, right you're I'm, teaching everyone else i'm yeah. teaching and i'm easing i'm easing the sort of like the the stranglehold of the people yes. piled up and i'm like look <laughs> yeah you're you're streamlining the whole experience for so so do you remember how long it took for you to feel like this this was home to you well it's funny i'm looking at that plant when i first moved here that plant was like a quarter of its size and then in my like first like three months in new york it like doubled in size and i think it's just because it's like a cactus and i was like living in a big apartment where they had like a big building where they had like the heat going all the time. So it was like really dry and hot. And the cactus was like, this is my climate I'm um, growing. But I remember thinking then of like, I found my home, you know, like this plant is, is growing and I'm growing. And yeah, I mean, I really, um, I really felt connected to New York kind of right away, which doesn't make sense. Like it's a really hard place to live. Everything's harder here. It's very expensive. You have to like live in close quarters with other people and travel long distances on the subway and laundry can be a pain. But for whatever reason, um, it just always clicked for me so much so that when I like went to LA for a year and I was working in TV and I came back to New York and I went down to the subway and I saw this like rat king slither by and I just like (laughs) sighed to myself like ah I'm home (laughs) but I think there's something I just like here it's all visible the dirt the grit everyone everything 
so I lived in I lived in LA for for several years, uh, and something I find funny in this like because the the comparison between New York and LA is constant, always and forever. Yes. It's an evergreen conversation <laughs> of two distinct places that are incomparable, and and yet they're constantly being compared to yeah. to each other. Like yeah. New Yorkers go to LA and like ah, it's not New York, right? Yeah. <laughs> Of course, because it's a, it's a difference. Like New York is nowhere else in the world. Yeah. But something I find interesting about uh, the the LA to New York comparison is the car thing in LA. Like you need because the 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 public transportation system is garbage in LA. Yes. It doesn't go anywhere you want yes. to go. You need to go, and that's the opposite of of New York City. Um, however, the time it takes to get from point A to point B in LA is actually pretty comparable to the time it yes. takes in New York. But the perception is yes. that it's different or lesser or harder or worse in Los Angeles. So I don't, I don't like stand up for LA for a lot of things, but I definitely realized that over my first couple of years of living in LA, I was just like, ah, it took me 45 minutes to an hour to get here. It's like traveling from Brooklyn to Manhattan right like yeah what's yeah. the difference i happen to be in my car by myself rather than in a, a train car well and at least if you're in a train car you can like read or work you know sure i that's really hard for me in la being in a car and you know oh, you can you can listen to a radio but that's right it's terrible kind of for it. the environment i'm yeah. really only um speaking up for time <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it is like hot garbage yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so when you were growing up in the, in, in the Portland area, uh, what was your relationship as like a kid or as an adolescent to the arts? Oh yeah. Um, well, I loved them. I always played like make-believe games, um, with my brother and my sister and our neighbors and, um, like, I guess my mom wanted to see if I could go to Montessori school and I went there and they were like, this wouldn't be a good match because your kid is too, too interested in imaginative play and we discourage that or something. <laughs> um, so that was like the first rejection of my life as an artist. Right. Um, <laughs> and um, like my my parents were big supporters of the arts. Like, you know, we would go to see theater or live music um I I mean relatively often I feel like I don't know maybe like a few times a year yeah <laughs> um and I remember like going going to like theater class at the JCC um and then when I was in school um I was always doing the school plays and I was always um in the music classes or doing the choir or like whatever um, instruments they offered. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to, to play them. So there was like recorder and then violin. And then, you know, in um, middle school, there was like band and I played the trombone and like, um, so I feel like I, I had like tons of arts all around me and that was like really lucky. Yeah. For, I know in a lot of schools, like, as you get into like third, fourth grade, they start to introduce like instruments and yeah. you know, throughout 
you know, first grade, second grade, like they're always they're always plays, right? Yeah. Like kids are always doing plays. And uh I'm fascinated about the the sort of like moment when everybody's doing this stuff. Yeah. To when young people start to divert into their tribes. Yeah. Right? Like there comes a time and it's probably different in a lot of different places and for a lot of different people. But there comes a point where it's just like everybody does the play because that's just what everybody's doing. Yeah. And now it's like, no, they do soccer. Right? <laughs> yeah. They do chorus and dramas over here. Right. Yeah. The, the And then sort of like the athletes go to their place yeah and obviously there's there a multitude of like exceptions to this but it there's some point in this in, as we grow up where you start to like go one way yeah. or the other uh and you become a theater kid or you yeah. become right. like a band person or whatever you want to call it yeah band geek well i, I feel we like i tried so hard to do sports yeah and I was just not cutting it. Like I, 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 I did almost all of them. I did soccer, I did baseball, I did basketball. And then like, you know, it's like you get older and the kids get better at it. And so there's like levels. And so I would always like be the lowest level. And then suddenly there was just like not a level for me <laughs> in any of the sports. And I didn't even really like them that much. I mean, I think I liked like running around I liked being part of a team but definitely my passion was in the arts I just like felt like I wanted to fit in and that's what everyone was doing and um I didn't want to be like labeled as like the weird artsy kid but like it, it chose me there was no <laughs> avoiding it yeah yeah our 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 distinctions at least where I where I grew up and maybe even people I grew up with would disagree with this but the 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 theater was so intertwined with the chorus uh-huh. the singing yeah so the singing was the entry points to doing theater mm. and I can't sing I couldn't sing then I can't yeah sing I have a a, a junior high school music teacher who really tried to, to convince me <laughs> That it was possible and yeah. and it was embarrassing to me. So when I get to high school, like it's like I can't I can't do theater because I think I don't know why, but something inside me wanted to. Uh-huh. And so I didn't because I couldn't sing. And that was like so there was like that curtain there. And I uh, not too different than you was uh, focused on athletics Um and I was not a good athlete, but I was like uh, the best bad athlete or the worst good athlete, right? Yeah. Like I was good enough to be on the team, not good enough to really be playing. Yeah. And so that, so because of that right there, I did not discover uh, theater until my 20s. Wow. Like I went through high school, went through undergrad, and... Uh, the something that was like planted years earlier sort of found its way. What was your exposure? What was the thing that happened? I, uh, I spoke about this on the podcast before. So, uh, 
for people, I'll say it again, but like anybody who has heard this story about my existential crisis, hit the skip ahead 30 <laughs> seconds a couple times. So uh, when when I graduated from undergrad, I, you know, I had a degree and but I had no drive yeah. I, for anything. I wasn't I didn't get a degree to do X. I didn't have any hobbies. Yeah. Um, and I just got a job and I was living in an apartment and having a job, going to work and coming home. And it was not long after doing that when I, I was like, holy shit, is this, is this life? Like 45 years of this? Yeah. Just back and forth and back and forth. I, I, and I'm 22, wow. right? Or 23. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so young. And, and I was like, pan, like on the verge of a panic attack with this realization. And so I, I was like, I also was like, do I know all the people I'm going to know? So wow. is my future, such big existential is my future spouse in this group, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. how does one uh, meet new people? How does one uh, find, uh, I, well, I didn't, I didn't have this word for it, but it's really what I was searching for was a purpose in life. I didn't, I wasn't using the word purpose, but in retrospect, that certainly, it was like, yeah. how do I find my purpose? And um, I had uh, a recognition of my personality at the time I was an attention seeker. Uh -huh. And uh, I was like, well, that is performance. Mm -hmm. So why don't I take an acting class? So that was how it all started. It was, I can meet new people and I can learn about acting and maybe do some acting yeah and that led from you know one thing to another to basically spending my 20s uh as a performer in one form or another uh and much and and the performing was very similar to my skill set as an athlete i was okay i like i wasn't yeah great i wasn't the star i couldn't take the stage uh, and I recognize that in myself, like this, I like doing this, but this is not for me, yeah. which led me to writing and, uh, which led me to playwriting. And then, then it all opened up, but it took me a decade wow. after undergrad to find writing. Wow. And it all started with this existential crisis because I didn't grow up with any real arts exposure i didn't yeah. grow up in an artistic family um my sister played flute but that was just kind of part of school you yeah, know yeah uh, it didn't feel like an artistic engagement or yeah. a career or anything like that uh and i wasn't a reader either uh -huh. like like that's another sort of like barrier i had it was like i just didn't read yeah so uh because of that just left to my own devices it took me until my early 30s too to find the wow. to find that purpose that I was seeking. Well, I'm so glad you found it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, you know, I and and when I talk to early career playwrights or people coming out of school or going into school, uh, I I'm like, time is such a like you know, time is relative. They say, but like uh, everything changes always. Yeah. Everything's impermanent. Like. Uh, find your thing and find, and maybe that thing isn't the thing, but keep 
doing something and then you'll find maybe it'll lead to something else and just yeah. keep, just leave yourself open to to discovery yeah. and don't pigeonhole yourself as I want to do this one thing mm-hmm. and then only do try to do that one thing because next thing you know 10 years will have passed and you didn't live a life you yeah. know and that's when you're going to feel regret yeah yeah it's good advice <laughs> Where so so uh how did you how did you find writing yourself? Oh yeah. Um well so I was in my um high school English classroom. Um and I saw this like sign on the wall that was like ten minute playwriting competition. Um, and I had always loved theater and I had always loved writing and it just felt like, why didn't I think of this before of Mm. like that, that you like write for theater than I did. And we had, we had time to do it in drama class or drama club. I can't remember if it was during school or after school, but Mm -hmm. there was, it was either drama class or drama club we could write plays and um i think no one else was really as into it as i was but i got really into it i'm pretty sure my play was only 10 minutes i think that was part of the whole deal it was like it was called shatter it was about a mad scientist it's funny now like in the times we're living in with ai and everything but the at the time I had written this play about this like mad scientist who had like created a computer that could like put together every single combination of like sounds and notes and so could like make every possible like musical composition that could exist or something. And um, he was going to like make a lot of money with this device. But there were these like artists who were like, you know, <laughs> mad about it and they like snuck into his lab and destroyed it. And that was the play. And I, I, I like directed it and staged it at school. And I think because I was the only one who was like so excited about playwriting. Um, so that was my entrance and it was great. Then um, as someone, maybe the drama teacher, I don't know, um, told me about this thing, young playwrights, that I think it doesn't exist anymore, but then anyways it was like a national competition Mm -hmm. it was like a theater here in new york and so i like had written a full-length play and i sent it in and the first time i sent it in i got this like glowing rejection letter like it was a page long and it was written by a real playwright off somewhere who like had read it and like wrote me everything that they like loved about my play and so that was like such a vote of encouragement and then I applied the next year and that one won in the competition and so if you in that time they paid for me to come here to New York and they and there were like maybe seven of us that were the winners and we stayed in a hotel in Midtown together and then there were readings of all of our plays and it was so so cool I mean it was life-changing it was like I have I mean maybe I would I would still be writing plays if that hadn't happened but I'm absolutely writing plays because that happened and because 
I was was nurtured in the craft and was like told that my voice mattered and shown what the art form was and what it could do and how how it, how it happens when you're not um, putting on the play in your own high school drama club where you're directing it yourself and you know in the building when everyone's all has gone home you know this was like I mean they had some rehearsal studio in Midtown and they had you know actors that had come in and I thought that this was like the most incredible thing ever. you know I was like yeah yeah it is the most is, incredible it, thing. it is the most incredible like, thing in that context yes 100 is the most incredible oh thing yeah so when you when you were like oh wow 10 minute play yeah i could do that i always i always assume and this is maybe wrong on my part that there's like because playwriting is so weird on the page yeah just like the presentation on the page is so weird i'm fascinated by those first the literal first times you tried to do that yeah you know like how do you how do you do you remember this when you were mm. when you were a kid like how did you first attack the page did you have a like a guide did you have a did you I have think somebody it was help like you a horrible imitation of like the samuel french booklets yeah. that had filtered down to me of like this is what a play looks like yeah, yeah. like like we we had done like the sound of music at, you know, my high school. And so I, you know, was like, oh, so this is must be how it is. And you have the name of the character and then a colon and then the yeah. text. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that was how I did it. And I think I had, you know, pages of boring stage descriptions describing every couch on stage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you've somehow read an O'Neill play. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I remember going to the to the library and like checking out plays and Yeah. Yeah. When so. I teach uh like in like an introductory playwriting course. Yeah. The formatting takes up way more time <laughs> than it should. Yes, same. And it drives me bananas <laughs> yeah. because you know there are reasons for it and there's so much there's so little time in class yeah and uh and also like as you know there there is kind of a guide for the way you format a play but it's not exact like not yes. every play needs to be formatted like, totally but it's essentially the name needs to be above the the dialogue yeah and the stage directions just need to be clearly different than the dialogue yes. that's that's essentially the rule yeah but my students also struggle and the, but because yeah. students need precise rules yes. you need to do to do x y and z and and nine times out of ten my students before they're taught formatting essentially do like the samuel french yeah style yeah and and i have to spend time saying well that's how they publish it to publish on fewer pages to save paper to make it cheaper yeah can we move on please <laughs> So you mentioned yeah. uh, you mentioned when you got that rejection, that feeling of I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it felt good to get this like um, page rejection. Like it, you felt seen, like somebody oh my gosh. recognized yes. your voice. You said, "Did you 
recognize your own voice in this? Like, what do you remember what you wrote about it at first? Hmm. I mean, I feel like the play I wrote that ultimately won was about some kind of like tortured family situation, which feels not too different from what I write about now. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all of a piece. Um, I, I didn't recognize my own voice and I don't think I had a sense of having a voice. I felt like I was um, writing in the style of the pl- what I thought a play was, I guess, mm-hmm. um, which at that time were like either musicals or like uh, these like plays. I think I think these plays were by David Ives that we would do at the school yeah, of all like in the timing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was what I knew a play was. And so um, I was just I was imitating that and I didn't have any sense of like there are different writers with different voices and different styles yet. I think mm. I, I pretty quickly learned that in college, but at that time, or maybe even when I, when I came here and we had that festival because everyone's plays in the festival were so different. But at that time it was really just like play. I can do play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this, so doing, so winning this thing kind of like, I don't know, you planted a flag in the ground and you're yeah, like, I completely. am a playwright now yeah. and you were hooked. So is that, that was your drive coming out of high school and going into undergrad? Yes and no. Like I think it was my drive, but also it was like this weird ephemeral thing of like, what is a playwright anyways? Um, and which is funny because I think in that program, we met some playwrights who sort of like tried to, um, express what the life of a playwright was, but still it just seemed kind of like a, well, that's a dumb thing to, to really have be your primary thing because it's not practical and it's unsustainable. So I like, um, kind of ran from my calling and I, um, studied all kinds of other different things, sort of like thinking like, you know, like I, I'll, I'll do playwriting, but I, um, need to have sort of like a more stable anchor in the world or a more stable um, job or career or or, um, line of of work and and sense of meaning because playwriting is sort of like fleeting it's funny like looking back I'm like all of that is true I don't I don't disagree with my younger self but I um, feel like I did it in like not a very like, like now I'm sort of like, oh, if that was the plan, I should have like studied computer science and that, you know, like instead yeah. it was like I was taking like English and history and dance, you know, or whatever being like, well, you know, playwriting isn't enough. So I have to have these other things and these other ways of getting work and making meaning in the world. And none of them, uh, they were all equally flimsy. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there's a... Um... Yeah, everything feels uncertain when you're when you're that yeah. age and the concept of making practical choices is like kind of beyond a young person. Uh yeah. So I I I, I like that you had the David Ives pieces. <laughs> yeah. Uh, early on. There's something about them that I find inspiring but also 
alienating because he in in that collection he think his brain works and probably I I don't I don't know David Ives but it, the way his work is presented in that collection his brain is he's just thinking in a different yeah my brain does not work that way so reading those pieces which I had done before I ever became a writer yeah it was like if that's writing plays then I'm not a playwright uh-huh. right yeah. and and there's also like a sneaky if you're not paying attention those plays just seem frivolous yeah they seem silly and fun uh yeah. but there is there is like satire and social commentary yeah. in it but you need to sit with them yeah to like to like see that and i'm wondering if these if these pieces inspired you tonally or like artistically or or really what I'm getting at is like where were where was your writing relative to this like tonally speaking where you did you yeah. have like a seriousness to you were you writing silly stuff mm, I think I was taking it pretty seriously uh, well I feel like uh I think the play that was rejected I was like it was very goofy it was sort of more in the David Ives style. Um, and then the play that I ultimately won with was not funny. And I I don't know what my stylistic influences were for that play, but it was not David Ives. I, well, I'm remembering that there... So there was a theater in Portland that was walking distance from my house that was like a theater that like a lot of different theaters used mm-hmm. and they had, you know, like $10 tickets or something if you came the night of. And so I started going there a lot when I was getting into theater and also my drama teacher acted in plays there. And one of the theaters that used that space was like a new play theater. Like they only did new plays. And, um, I, w- and I loved, their work and I saw so many things that affected me and made me the writer that I am and so um I'm sure that was like part of what influenced Mm -hmm. that play did winning this the young playwrights thing with a serious play and then losing on something that was sillier <laughs> tell you that mm. oh I, this is the way I'm supposed to write and not the way that got wow. rejected. Maybe yeah, on some deep level. I mean, I I definitely like don't consider myself to be a comedy writer, and I'm always surprised when people say that my work is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting now because I have quite a lot of students who will come in and be like, as a comedy writer, and I like immediately say like, well, since I'm not a comedy writer, I don't know about that, you know, but but I do know that often humor comes from character or whatever, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so I, I've i never thought of myself as a, as a comedic writer as that is my main strength, I guess, and maybe that was the source of it. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> Were you imagining a life? Like, like at the time when, when, you know, your life was coalescing around being a writer and being a playwright, like, did you think of a future or were you? Hmm. I think so. I mean, I feel like for a while it was all one of like, 
I will do theater of like, I'll be a, an actor and a writer and a, it was all sort of one thing. Um, and then I think as I got older and um, it became clear to everyone that I was not uh, worth really watching on stage. Um, <laughs> and um, just, just really wanted to write. Then um, I started, I, I knew I wanted to pursue it, but I think, the way forward or how one did that sort of like remained a mystery. And um, even when I took playwriting classes in college, I didn't really understand from the visiting artists who came in, like what it meant that they were playwrights or what their lives really looked like. Um, mm. So I, I don't think I saw like a future vision of like, here's what a playwright is. Here's what a playwright does until um, the summer after I graduated from college, I had followed my college girlfriend to San Francisco and we promptly broke up, but I was still there and I went to this Bay Area Playwrights Festival mm -hmm. and that was where I met some actual playwrights who were, you know, writing and also working in other fields and doing other jobs and traveling and doing residencies and started and they weren't t that much older than me mm -hmm. then and so then I could sort of start to see like okay this is what a playwright is this is what a playwright does mm -hmm. um but until then it was somewhat opaque to me how were you surviving at the time I was teaching Spanish yeah I was I was, it was like an after school program. I was also a reading tutor. I also worked in a coffee shop. I had quite a lot of jobs because mm -hmm. it's very expensive to live in San Francisco. Right. I guess maybe less now than it was. Yeah. I heard something recently that it's less expensive now. Yeah. Who would have known that <laughs> in San Francisco? <laughs> yeah. 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 That place has changed so much. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess it's like, it's like one of those cities that's ha that has been in constant change. Yeah. And, uh, but everybody has their time when it's like my San Francisco. Yeah. Like my San Francisco was a certain way. Yeah. Right. And it's never going to be that way again. Yeah. Right. I don't know if anybody. I don't know if anybody's going to claim this particular time right now. Yeah, I have a yeah. friend who just who just moved there from New York, so I'm curious to hear what it's like. Yeah. yeah. So, so was San Francisco where you like, like, did you sort of dig in and find community and? Mm, not really. I didn't last very long there because, uh, I. Well. I don't know. I mean, I think partly because it was so expensive, partly because I had like gone there for this relationship that then ended. I like fell off my bike and broke my elbow and had to get surgery that was only going to be covered in Massachusetts where my parents lived at the time because I was still on their health insurance. So, mm -hmm. um, I just like the moment that happened, I packed up and left with no plans of going back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it just didn't really vibe with me, I guess. And I think that was like the last time that I tried living a plane flight away from my family. And I was just like, wow, I'm just like much happier when I can see them a lot more often. Yeah. Um, so, so at this point you're out of, you're out of school. 
you've got a broken yeah. elbow. You're moving <laughs> back east. Yes. Yeah. I moved into my parents' house and the agreement was that I could have free rent if I was a full-time nanny for my little sister. Yeah. And I was like, I think I'm going to get an MFA in playwriting because I, cause I think of my whole experience in San Francisco, the main thing that like meant something was going to that barrier playwrights hustle and meeting actual playwrights and like understanding how they, how they did it. Um, and, and there was one playwright there Deborah Stein, she's a friend now, and she told me about going to get her MFA, and she told me about studying with Paula Vogel, and um, that was like really exciting to me. I Paula was someone whose work I I knew, and I had studied it in college, and was you know really interested, um, and so that was what made me decide to get an MFA was. I could study with Paula and um, someone else had done it and, you know, had a really great experience. Um, and so I um, applied to do that from my parents' house with a broken elbow. And that was what happened next. <laughs> uh, just, a tan- just a brief tangent. Uh, Deborah Stein wrote this play called God Save Gertrude. Yes. And... Yeah. Uh, this theater I worked for in Pasadena produced it years uh-huh. ago. And I was very much a baby playwright at the time. And so in that and the theater at Boston Court in Pasadena where I was working was a new play theater. Uh-huh. So what you, you, you were talking earlier about yes. seeing going to this new play theater, like yeah. as a as a just a, a fledgling playwright and being exposed to uh, this theater and working like being you know inside it embedded in it and watching these plays yeah be birthed um it was super inspiring to me and uh, a couple of them early on in my first couple of years working at this theater um it was a uh, dark play or stories for boys by carlos Murillo. Wow. and god save gertrude was another one that was wow. kind of inspiring to me because um of like it broke form like yeah. for me it was like completely experimental yeah and it was it was wild and it was loud and it was punk rock um literally and metaphorically yes. speaking and and uh and i was just like this is a play too yeah this is amazing that this can be a play yeah and i've never forgotten it and i i think i've only met deborah stein like once or twice but yeah. i've never told her uh, maybe I should. Maybe I should interview her for this. Actually, if you're if you're listening, Deberstein. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll be calling you. Um, but yeah, so that guy. Whenever when I hear when I hear her name, I'm immediately like, oh yeah, that play was so inspiring to me. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. And then she was my teacher when I was a student at Yale because um, she like came and taught this like writing for ensemble class. Mm. Um, and that was amazing. And I, um, I really looked up to her and I still do. Do you have, do you have plays that you remember seeing or reading early on in your development that like you real you're like, wow, this, this is something special to me. Definitely. Um, I remember going to, the public library in Portland where I grew up and just like looking at, 
you know, plays in the theater section. And one that I happened to just like pick off the wall was collected plays by Maria Fornes and the play that I like opened up to that I was like, what the hell is this? I, what is happening was the Danube. Mm. And, um, that changed everything. Um, and yeah. Can you talk about that more? Like, yeah, well in it, um, the characters, gosh, I haven't read it in a number of years. I should go back to it. Um, they're not speaking the same language or maybe, maybe it's like they're supposed to be speaking to each other in Hungarian, but we're hearing them in English. Basically their language is like breaking down as their relationship is breaking down and then they become puppets and they're falling in love and breaking each other's hearts. But the way that you sort of like know that is through their language deteriorating. Um, yeah, I, I just remember being like, wow, I didn't, know that you could use words to tell a story like this yeah um yeah and not that you know the the plays that inspired me early on i i didn't ever like then do that like try to do that thing yeah. but but it was sort of like you just soak it in yeah and so so like can you can you think of ways in which your writing started to evolve because of like plays like that or other other experiences. Hmm. I mean, I think that that was the beginning of me realizing like, oh, characters in plays don't have to talk the way that I talk or the way that mm. I hear people around me talk. It can be um or 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 Actually, it was like the beginning of me realizing that what realism was or what naturalism was of this sort of like construction of how people talk on stage that is neither how we speak in real life or um, mm. shedding some kind of like artistic truth on language through abstraction. Um, and so when I started to discover that, I wanted to explore that in my in my writing and um you know how can i break and wound language to communicate truth how can i um abstract the words that we use with each other to tell a story i think mm -hmm. became like a some a lifelong project suddenly mm -hmm. yeah so I've spoken to lots of folks that have come through Yale and so there's like a certain amount of perceived privilege for playwrights who are coming through Yale um, and fairly or unfairly and a lot of both uh, like I don't know, jealousy might not be the right word, but like a lot of folks like me who went to other programs and see the rise of the folks coming through yeah. New Haven and yeah. being like, uh, like, like if only, you know, like there's yeah. just so many responses, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, 
how do we talk about, I guess this might be the question, how do we talk about the discrepancies uh, amongst all of our institutions when some of them seem to be um, elevated and some of them looked down upon? Yes. Well, I mean, it's some bullshit, honestly. It's like um, elitism and consolidation of resources and this like um, false sense that um, there can only be a certain number of talented writers as opposed to like everyone's voice is valuable and we need them all and can learn from them all. And I mean, I think, you know, that that sort of like formative experience that I had as a child, as a teenager, when I like sent my play off to New York City and it was chosen is really messed up, actually, because it's like suddenly I felt special and I felt like my writing mattered. And the downside of that is that I didn't already feel special and I didn't already feel right. like my writing mattered. Right. And that's bad, actually. Like every child who sits down to write should think that they're special and that their writing matters. They shouldn't have to send it off to New York City for that. They shouldn't have to get chosen. They shouldn't have to get the like glowing long rejection letter that I got. Like that should be how our culture treats creation and art and it's fucked that we don't and it's because of capitalism really that's sort of like saying we have to like be pitted against each other and value some writing and some writers more than others and there's these sort of like milestones and stamps of approval that count towards that and um it makes me sad and i think that it holds our industry back because i think it like um tends to like not favor a diversity of voices not just in terms of like who's writing but like how we're writing and what we're writing and what we're writing about um and that holds all of us back Mm. so um i think it's shit and also i got to have an amazing education and and really incredible mentors Mm. did you have a moment have you had a moment where and maybe it happened when you were in high school. I don't, uh, and maybe you've already said this, but where it, you were like, I've, I, I think I got it. Like I figured out who I am as this playwright, you know, like you said early on that you're like, you got, you got, you won the thing. You're like, yeah. I am a playwright. We talked about that moment, but has there ever been a moment where you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I've got my, my machine built and it's now running. Mm. (laughs) Um, I feel like I check myself for that moment every day or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Of like, um, cause I think sometimes I look back on my past work and I'm like, do any of these plays have anything in common with the other? (laughs) Do I have a coherent voice at all? Um, and yeah a sort of sense of like I I mean it's hard for me to say like in a world where I didn't depend on sort of like grants and fellowships and commissions to like keep my life going if I would also be like 
seeking them out for some sense of like I count my work my writing counts or something mm -hmm. um but I I imagine yes I think that that's like sadly the world that we live in is that um to be a writer and reach an audience you have to have some kind of like hey 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 milkshake leave it leave it baseline of like sort of like institutional support to do it I mean maybe not not necessarily I think some writers are like whizzes at self-producing but even even then they often depend on like grants from institutions so yeah and the um, burnout rate for that is very high hey 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 leave it I know because it's so much work to self yes self-produce yes yeah last summer I produced a play I wrote in a public park and I I feel like I can't do it again for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it just completely wiped me out. And the whole time it was just like flying by the seat of my pants because if I really thought about all the work that it was going to take or everything that was going to happen, I would have never done it. But I was just in it. So I had to keep going. Yeah, yeah I, I there is this perception that I have because uh, I have a project that I will likely self-produce. Mm -hmm. And the perception is... If it's not in a theater, it's going to be easy to produce, <laughs> oh right? Because you take out all of those needs and all of those costs. Yeah. And suddenly it's going to be easier. But, I mean, that's not true. No. Right? Like, oh, my God. It was the opposite of true. There were so many things I didn't think about. Like, the one that's coming to mind now is, like, laundry. Like, we had to wash the costumes between shows, mm -hmm. which meant that, like, every night... Someone had to collect them, take them back to like either someone's house or someone's building, a laundromat. There was like a theater in Manhattan where we could use their laundry, but the park we were doing the show in was in Brooklyn. Like had to take them back, wash them, bring them back. All of our props we were like storing in this van near the park that we had to like drive around and look for a place to park every night. Like <laughs> it was, yeah, it was such a disaster. But Why'd... it was great, actually. I mean, I the thing we made was I was so 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 happy with it. Like, it was it was so much work and it surpassed expectations. So what way, what so. was the uh, motivation to to do this piece and do it in a park? Well, oh yeah, the motivation was there was a global pandemic and the theaters were closed and I had written a play years ago that was like set in a forest and that I always wanted to do site specifically. And so wouldn't it be great to do it outside in a format where um, audience audiences could watch without fearing, um, you know, exposure and that, that this play would be a natural fit for that. And just to make it harder, I decided that since the play was sort of like had, was like, you know, set during a climate crisis um, we should do a like low waste production. So we should like use um, almost all recycled materials and, um, you know, whatever. I, it, it was it was just it was ridiculous. The challenge that I set up for myself mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, I, you know, we drove ourselves bonkers trying to make it happen. But we did. And it was great. It was not as low as low waste as I had hoped for it to be, I think. Um, in some sense, it was like lower waste just by virtue of like not being in a theater building where we would be using all the power of a lighting grid and, you know, air conditioning and a sound system and every, you know, all of the carbon footprint of that. But um, there was still waste produced by like 
putting all our costumes in a van and driving them around and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, how everyone got to the theater and, um, you know, some props we we had to drive around town to pick up or return. And, you know, most of the things we got were recycled or borrowed, but some some things our costume designer ended up buying new. Um, So it was not fully successful in that regard. But um, having done it, I would say it was like a worthwhile experiment, like definitely worth learning. And, you know, it made me interested and curious about um, what it would mean to, to do it again with a little bit more time and thoughtfulness around um, sustainability. Like if, if that was more the driving content rather than another story, I wonder what would happen. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have any advice that you give your students that you should probably take yourself? <laughs> um, I think all the advice I give my students, I should probably take myself. Um, let's see. What are some of the things that I tell them? I mean, the big one, writing is collaborating with the unknown you have to sit with the chaos of the universe because if you sit long enough, you'll start to hear music in it. And the music you hear is music that only you can hear. No one else can hear that music. So you have to write it down. And um, that is usually somewhat motivating for the students because, um, you know, none of us like to sit down in front of the page and not know what's going to happen and um, sit with that discomfort of not knowing. But I think that that, often motivates them um so I try and use that to motivate me um, how, how do you how do you get to that headspace right where you can mm. you can you can start to hear because I think another like I think as a writer I understand yes what you're saying and yeah. I, I also know uh I can go right anywhere but yeah. I can't do that anywhere yeah totally you know, it's it's a hard place to get to yeah it really is um for me it has to do with not thinking i'm me mm. <laughs> which is like a funny thing to say but um i think of this like tony morrison quote where she says like um for your sake and mine forget your name in the street of like um if you're if you're thinking about how you look to others, how you seem to others, that sort of, for whatever reason, takes away from one's ability to hear that music. And so, you know, if I like get up first thing in the morning before I have a chance to like really let those voices of how the world is perceiving me set in, sometimes it's a lot easier if I um, like exercise a lot or go for a long run then somehow I like have can like weed out that level of anxiety or something. Um, So, and then there's other things of just like, okay, I'm just going to like write 10 pages. I can't stop till I'm done. I'm not even going to think about it, you know, stuff like that. Um, Yeah. But it, it is hard for me um, if I know sort of like where a piece is going to end up. Like if I'm doing a rewrite on something that's already in production, that's when it can be really hard because Mm. then I'm thinking about the audience and I'm thinking about what the audience will see and how they'll make meaning of it. And that a little bit takes away from the ability to just sort of like 
sit with the unknown and hear the music in it. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah. Uh, I was just talking to another playwright yesterday about something uh, like something like this and how uh, like a Paula Vogel bake off yeah. helps to yes. sort of prime that and get the brain where it needs to be to sort of open up and just let this stuff come out. And yeah. uh, I've been working like, in fits and starts on a, on a play. And since I've been here in New York over the past few days, when I've got an hour here, an hour there, I've yeah. been like chipping away at it. And I got to this scene yesterday where I was just like, oh, this moment is calling for an aria of mm. sorts, right? Mm. And uh, and I knew right then that I am I cannot write that right now. Yeah. But I know I needed to write that. Yeah. And to write it, I need to go to that place where I'm listening. I hear the world and I'm hearing the music yeah. as you describe it. Um, and that's how the words will come. And I just basically wrote that note to self in that spot. And uh, uh, I haven't continued on beyond that right now. So yeah. I'm, I'm like, it's like I'm gaming out something that you can't really, it just needs to happen, yeah. right? It, it's it's yeah. like unpredictable. And, and how do you put yourself in that situation where the world is going to start speaking to you and you're going to start to feel that freedom of that, that the words just come out of your gut, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the truth is that most of the time it doesn't happen like that. Like when I wrote the play that became my thesis for my MFA, it was like a magical writing experience where mm. I, I thought I was going to write this other play and I just like had this fleeting idea. So I like decided to sit down and write it and I wrote it and almost all just like came out just like mm. tumbled out and that was it and I thought to myself like oh maybe I found it now like I found my process or my voice and this is it and I brought it into um Jeannie O'Hare who was running the program at that time and I like told her about it and she was like oh it's actually the opposite like you need to forget that that ever happened to you um and I see what she meant now of like um that is not the norm for artists um that is not how most things get made um usually it's like hard work and like stumbling over and around it and through it until like you go back and can like sort of like see it amongst the messy pages mm -hmm. and like put it into shape but if you're sort of like sitting there waiting for the perfect thing to come out that will never happen and maybe once in your creative life it will happen by accident but it will never happen if you wait for it kind of, you know? Yeah. Do you buy the stories <laughs> of like, uh, Oh, they got into the studio and they wrote, you know, Bob Dylan wrote like a Rolling Stone in two and a half minutes and just, you know, or, uh -huh. or like, or like the stories of Edward Albee uh -huh. writing like a complete play, you know, in one swoop Sitting. without like revising. And it's like, it wins the pull, right? Like, like these Maybe great I mean works could be. I think what I have observed of my process and every the process of every artist I've ever been close to is that that is not the norm. Yeah. And so maybe that's a story that those artists like to tell about themselves. Um, and and maybe it's true for them, but I I would say, um, 
don't count on that. And what you really shouldn't do is like have that be the criteria. So like right, this yeah. is a thing I go through a lot with the students. They're like, I'm struggling. So this was never a good idea. And I have to be like, you're struggling because you're in it and yeah. you're going to find your way out of it. And it's like, you know, how a butterfly goes into a cocoon. I mean, a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, completely dissolves, is a total mess, and then becomes a butterfly. Right. Um, and um, making something means getting messy. It means sitting with the messy. And some messes are longer than others. Some plays take decades to write. That doesn't make them any less good than the ones that yeah. happen by accident in two hours. You know? Yeah. 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 I think I approach every play, like I sit down and, uh, and I'm like, let's go. And then it, yeah, whatever happens just happens. Like I think each play, the process is, is different. The yeah. way it comes out, I should say is different. Uh, the only thing that is the same for every single one is that I sit down and start. Yeah. Right. Like that's the only thing you can control yeah. honestly is like the time you're putting into it. Pretty much. But then yeah. we hear, we just hear stories. We hear exceptions. Totally. Right. And we yeah. always are just like, well, so-and-so did this and look, I know. I feel like it goes back to that thing we were talking about a minute ago about how like, sitting down to make something is like not inherently special. Like I feel like so many of my students are looking for evidence that they're doing it wrong or that mm. they're not meant to do this or that this will never work out for them. And mm. so every sort of like stumble in the process or every sort of difficulty in the process is just like evidence of that that fuels that story as opposed to like this is what the process is the process is stumbling around in the dark and mm -hmm. at some point you arrive but you have no control over when you arrive mm -hmm. and it's a sad intersection of like the way our culture treats artists and the like beautiful mess of creative process <laughs> mm -hmm. uh can you tell me about the Transparent musical? Yes. Um, so we just had our first production of it um, in L.A. at Center Theater Group at the Mark Taper Forum. Um, it was super duper exciting. We had um, a cast that was almost two thirds trans. I think two thirds. trans. Yeah. Like I think we, we had like 16 actors and 12 of them were trans or something like that. I can't remember the total breakdown, but um, it was really, really special. And it was like a really special rehearsal room to go to every day and um so exciting to watch it all come to life on those bodies in this time when trans lives are so viciously under attack um and to watch our audiences receive it and and feel them laugh and cry and be moved by um, the story and by seeing um, trans stories being told by trans people, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk at all about, uh, have you written the book to a musical before? No, this is the first time. Well, I, I wrote the book to a musical in grad school for, it was just like a, a one-off project that we did at the Yale Cabaret, but that, I feel like that doesn't really count. <laughs> so, uh, because I'm like, I'm trying 
to do that and I'm oh, not yeah. equipped to do it. And yeah. I also don't speak the language of music. Yeah. And um, I think I'm getting in my own way a little bit, but uh, I'm, I'm curious if you like, if there were barriers in your way in approaching it artistically, like how did you, uh, and, and how was the collaboration as far as like conceiving of the story and approaching yeah. and writing the story? Um, well, so it's an adaptation of a TV show, but it's also its own thing and its own story. Um, and when I came aboard the project, there was quite, there were quite a lot of, um, goals and, and ideas and, um, sort of like storyline agendas that were floating around. Um, and I co-wrote it with, um, Joey Soloway and then their sibling Faith Soloway wrote the music and the three of us went off on a retreat together to Provincetown and we sort of like um, came up with some big picture ideas and then we had to like tear that apart again and put it back together again and we we did that a lot of different times. Um, I think the whole time through I really had the sense of like when you're trying to choose what color to paint a room from like a tiny swatch of paint and you're just kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to try this and like hope it works. And it's this like weird thing because it's like, you know, a color that's really bold can be overwhelming in a room. So it's sort of like tempting to choose the most sort of like pale option, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which I really felt on this project and had to resist of like, no, let's let's like um, choose big strokes. Let's tell this story as boldly as possible, mm -hmm. even though. I really have no idea what it's going to be like till it all comes together. Cause there's so many elements. There's music, there's voices, there's arrangement, there's a band, there's choreography, there's um, set pieces, there's costume changes. There's, we had live fire on stage. You know, it was like, I, I really, really won't know what this is until we finally make it, which mm -hmm. was terrifying and exciting. And I, feel pretty proud of what we made and have a thought or two about how to choose the paint swatches in the future. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, so when you write a piece like this, so a musical is even a bigger collaboration than a play. Yeah. And when you're co-writing the book and you're using pre-existing material yeah. that your co-writer created, right. Um, it's easy speaking for myself, it's easy to find myself in my work when I'm like generating the entire thing from soup to nuts. Like, yeah. like, did you feel yourself in the work that you were creating? Mm. Did you feel like you needed to, to even mm. do that? Like, where huh. were you? Did you, do you see yourself the creator in, yeah. in this? I do. Um, I mean, in, and I feel like, in a sort of like uh, info sheet demographic way, I see myself in like the story and the characters in terms of like, um, I'm trans, I come from a Jewish family, I have queer parents, so there's sort of like multiple generations of queerness in my family, which is also happening in this family that was on stage. Um, but then I feel like I had to do some work with each character because they weren't my characters. So I had to sort of like find how am I going to make them mine? And, um, you know, like this character who's like kind of a soccer mom and she's 
tortured on the inside that's like nothing like my life but like how do I get inside her what does she think about what is she doing how how do I make her mine mm. um it's kind of like a fun writing challenge it's a little bit similar to when I was like writing on a tv show um mm. yeah yeah, yeah I see that. where you're sort of like trying trying to just like put on these characters eyes I'm if I'm her what yeah. am I thinking what am I doing what, what do I want at all times yeah so in the in the end you can see right your work in yourself but much like on a tv show the outsider sees uh who they know like the characters they already know and love and yes. that there is sort of like continuity yes. right through it that you aren't disrupting and that's part of the job is to not disrupt that yeah to honor totally. that yeah. yeah though we were always clear that we wanted the voice of our musical to be unique and distinct from the tv show that mm -hmm. it's like they're connected same world same characters and also this is its own form and its own language and the sort of like humor logic is its own thing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the way the characters speak is its own thing because characters speak differently on stage than on tv it's just like a really different medium when you're sort of like in a close-up on someone's face and watching every breath they take versus when you're in a 700 seat theater you know and you're watching two people have a fight it's just like how they have to interact with each other is different because the tools we have to communicate how they're feeling and what they're doing to each other are different you mm -hmm. know do you feel successful <laughs> Um, yes, I feel very successful. <laughs> um, I feel like I, um, have gotten to make things that I was proud of that were meaningful to me that spoke to audiences, um, in ways that I was really honored by. Um, so to me, that's success and I've, I've gotten to to have that and I feel so blessed because of that um yeah <laughs> uh is there anything that you're hopeful for in the future or thinking about for the future um I'm hopeful that our theater world will expand a bit more I feel there's like a lot of constricting in the industry right now in these years that are sort of like following the height of the pandemic. Um, and it's, it makes me really sad. And quite honestly, it makes it hard to sit down and write a new play because I like to write plays with a lot of characters and big ensembles and, you know, um, a big world and, and something about that big canvas feels not suited for this time in the theater that like it's a time of like one person shows or like two people one room kind of thing and that hasn't been how I've motivated how I've been motivated to write for theater in the past I, I mean could be in the future but um and so I feel a little sad about that and and hope that um there's expansiveness in our future mm. I'm just left wondering what Milkshake's next play is going to be about. 
I think it's gonna be the drama of fetch at the dog park. Right. Or the drama of who's on the other side of the door, Ooh. which we experienced a workshop of earlier. That's right. Yeah, that right. that was Duke, the arch enemy. Oh, it's um, always a Duke, isn't it? It's always a Duke. <laughs> yeah. She, she's in her own sort of Shakespearean drama here. Will Duke control the building or will milkshake? <laughs> Thank you to both MJ and Milkshake for inviting me into your living space. Keep your eyes open for a transparent musical in the future. According to a Variety Magazine article, it will be seen on Broadway next year. Thank you to American Theatre Magazine and Editor-in-Chief Rob Weiner-Kent for keeping the subtext chugging along. Music from the opening to this episode is by the band Boxknife. Music underscoring me right now is from associate producer KJ Jarbo, who also edited this episode. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is The Ancestry.com Play by Alyssa Haddad Chin. This is an excellent play with so many quotable moments. I loved it. <laughs>